This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button question stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. We're also on iTunes where you can download podcasts, and we have a Facebook page that you can contact us at. In other words, we're all over the place. We are indeed. <laughs> yes, we are. Welcome back, Kurt. Thank you. Last, last week we had an interesting interview while you were away, but uh, we're back to our topic of critical thinking and why do people believe what they believe. But before we get to that, there's at least one news item that I came across. The lovely and gracious Nancy Kendricks alerted me to this Wall Street Journal article about the mother of all languages. So this was in their environment and science section, an article by Gautam Nayak. And he's talking about a language study that was published in the journal Science that takes a look at how languages have changed as human beings dispersed across the world. So it's kind of interesting. It matches the same patterns as the DNA models that they've used that, that show that the most diverse amount of DNA is found in the Middle East and then Africa and then as you go out from there and spread out across the world you get less and less complex DNA less and less possibilities of making different types of genes and different types of proteins as you go further away from that starting point. Rather than read this long article I'll just you know, kind of distill it down into what his idea was that if you counted parts of language, like what he used was phonemes or sounds, sounds of language, and you looked at, he looked at Africa as a starting place, that there were more sounds in the languages there, and then as you go further and further away, there are fewer sounds. It's kind of interesting I think it doesn't really prove a whole lot. It, it doesn't prove that there was one language. I've read quite a bit on this subject of where languages came from, and so far most of what I've seen seems to indicate that you get down as you, as you work backwards trying to show where each language came from. You get down to about three or four base languages which are completely separated by all types of uh, syntax and grammar and sounds and, you know, just don't seem to be similar at all. So I don't think his, you know, thesis is proved here just by showing what he really is showing is that language decays over time. You mean like gangster rap? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, could be. You know, you get less and less sounds as time goes by. And as you move away from populations that had other sounds. 
So that may show that language decays, but it doesn't really show that it all came from the same. Because you could have three or four original languages with different syntax, grammar, structure that had lots of sounds in them. I think, uh, do you see my point? I find it interesting myself the way uh, slang changes from generation to generation. Oh, yeah. How they come up with new expressions that catch hold and everybody uses it for a while and then that fades and then another one comes up. Right. And then pretty soon it's like the stuff you used to say when you were a kid sounds hopelessly out of date when you grow up. <laughs> well, which your children will certainly remind you of. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But they still say cool a lot. We used to say that way back in the 50s, and they still use that term. Yeah, I know. That 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 came back. I guess it's cool to say cool. So, But groovy is out. You don't say groovy anymore. Well, and we're coming up on the 400th anniversary of the King James Version, and I find it almost incomprehensible <laughs> to read. It takes a lot of practice to be able to read the King James. And that's with there being dictionaries around. Right. So Yeah, I started out with a modern language version of the Bible because I couldn't handle the King James. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's jump into our topic for the day. We've been doing a series on critical thinking based on a study that showed that kids in college, or young men and women, I guess we shouldn't call them kids, simply aren't learning critical thinking skills and about a third of them graduate after four years with no improvement whatsoever in critical thinking skills. So we've been doing a series on logic and critical thinking skills, and we've gotten up to reasons why people believe or don't believe different things. And so now we're hitting the topic of propaganda. So that's an area that you addressed in your book, What is Truth, Kirk? So you want to interest, introduce us to the idea of propaganda and what it is? Yes, I uh, kind of wrapped up the end of my book with a pretty long chapter on propaganda, especially in our modern mass media, because it was kind of a learning process for me as I uh, grew up. I, you know, At one point, I was one of those people that believed that everything you hear on TV must be true and everything that's printed <laughs> in the newspaper must be true, or why is it in there? Right. And it was quite a shock to me to discover that not quite everything that you see in here is actually accurate, that it can actually be colored by the biases of the reporter reporting it. Right. Either intentionally or not intentionally. Yes. Either way. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was quite a shock to me to discover that. And it uh, led me to a couple of different books, uh, in particular a book called Bias by Bernard Goldberg, who was a reporter for years and years at CBS. Mm -hmm. And he started to notice over the years how the news reporting there was getting more and more um, you know, slanted in certain directions. And he started to complain about it, and he was pretty much ostracized by the media for it. And oh, that because really he opened... admitted that the media was biased? Yes. He, wow. he he wanted to study this issue, and he was surprised that every time he brought the issue up, everybody else was like, no, no, we can't talk about that. There's no such thing. Uh-huh. And uh, reading that book really opened my eyes a lot. So When, when was that I, published? I, I'm, I'm interested in that book. I haven't heard of it. Uh, just a few years ago. I would say uh, about five or six years ago, and he's written oh, okay. a couple of books since. 
Okay, cool. And uh, he's not really his he's his background is not that of like either a conservative or a Republican. He was a Democrat. He is still a Democrat, and he doesn't fit the uh, the standard stereotypes of oh, you know, he he must be a conservative if he believes all that and you know whatever. He he's a person who worked in the industry and was very involved in it for years and years and even he started to notice how uh, the standards for accuracy and truth in the news business were kind of disappearing yep yep and you sure see that today yes so and i've read a few books since about it and it's really it's gotten a lot worse since he wrote his book oddly enough yeah i like to one of the ways you can measure this is simply by using the scan button on your radio when you're driving around, uh-huh. I'll listen to a news item on on one station, and then I'll scan, and then I'll you'll pick up NPR, okay, and you'll hear the exact same news story given in a totally different way from a totally different perspective. <laughs> exactly, and and sometimes you do learn something new or or different that that wasn't picked up by the more conservative news organization. But usually what I see from, at least from NPR, is I see a tendency to leave out things. Yes. They, they they just simply don't report the things that would make the left look bad. Right. And so, in a sense, they're not really lying. No, they're um, not necessarily twisting the truth, but they, they choose what they are going to tell you and what they're not going to tell you, right. which and in itself is kind of filtering the news for you. Exactly, and it's a form of propaganda. Yes, it is, which is why it's helpful to uh, keep an eye on as many different media sources as possible so that you can get a somewhat balanced view. Because you get right. a bunch so of different you viewpoints. Look out for you should look out for left wing stories and look for right wing stories and try to get both sides of something. Right. It's helpful so, to listen to Rush Limbaugh and Katie Couric and see how each of them treat the same story or don't report something at all. <laughs> right. Right. All right. Well, let's get into the different techniques of propaganda. What kinds of things are, are used if you want to propagandize somebody or if you want to be aware of propaganda? And I guess we should point out that propaganda is something that we hear all the time. Yes. Propaganda comes from political commercials, mm-hmm. right? When it's election time, you hear all sorts of propaganda, but you also yeah. hear it in commercials. Sure. All right, commercials are propaganda, really. Yeah, they they're want trying to, to get you to do something or buy something. Exactly right, or think a certain way. Right. So, and that that makes them more successful at selling a product to you. I find it interesting when they keep bringing up controversies about uh, there's too much sex and violence on television, and it's it's teaching our kids to do these kinds of things, and the the stereotypical response of the media executives is, oh, the, the stuff we do doesn't influence anybody. It's just harmless entertainment. Right. But yet they'll spend millions of dollars for a one-minute commercial to try to convince somebody in the same program to do something or buy something. Right. And so, they know it works. Yeah. That's how so, they're able to charge so much. Right. 
you know, how can it be that the little one-minute commercial can convince you to go out and buy a mouthwash, but the other 30 minutes of the program you're watching doesn't influence you at all? <laughs> right. Yep, definitely not true. Doesn't make any sense. Okay, so what are the techniques? What, what should we look out for? Well, the first one is card stacking. Yeah, card stacking. Now, this one you see, you see quite a bit, but you wouldn't necessarily recognize it unless you, were, you knew that this was a technique. Sure, um, you would expect someone to, uh, if they're presenting an argument to, to you, to present their side of the argument. That's right. And so sometimes you don't recognize it because you just think, oh, well, or you know what? The best way to do card stacking or the most effective way is when you appear to be an authority in a certain field. Right. But instead of giving all of the sides of, an, of the different arguments that might be in some field, let's say you're an astronomer and you're going to give a talk on astronomy. Okay, well, there are all kinds of different theories about, say, oh, star formation or Big Bang, or maybe your field is physics. I, I heard recently that there are 10 different theories about quantum mechanics. Right. So, can you imagine if you're a physicist and you're giving a talk or you're writing a book, and instead of addressing those 10 theories, or at least, say, the few prominent ones, maybe there are one or two or three prominent theories, mm -hmm. instead of addressing each one, you pretend that only one view, namely your view, is the only view out there. Right. That's called card stacking. Right. So you put everything in your favor. You, you not only only talk about your view, but you only talk about the positive angle of your view, what evidence supports your view, right. and nothing about anybody who disagrees with you. And nothing about any of the possible negatives. Right. Now, I've got a good example. I pulled it out of my library before the show because this is an incredible example of card stacking. It's a book called The Bible Unearthed, and it's by Israel Finkelstein and Neil Asher Silberman, two Israeli archaeologists. The subtitle of the book is Archaeology's New Vision of Ancient Israel and the Origin of Its Sacred Texts. Okay. And it's all about the history of Israel. The funny thing is, it only gives one side. And it doesn't even acknowledge that there might be a difference of opinion. And I assume if it's a new viewpoint, it probably uh, tries to debunk a lot of the old viewpoints? No, you would have that totally wrong. It doesn't do that at all. And that, that's it funny just pretends that they don't exist? <laughs> exactly. That's well, what it does. Even in the subtitle, it says, Archaeology's New Vision. Right. Do you know that there's not one word of the old vision in here? It's totally a presentation of all of the facts and evidences that support their view with not the slightest recognition that anyone might be disagree with them. Okay. So this is a perfect example of card stacking. That goes on a lot. <laughs> yeah, it does. Really, it does. This is one of the things that when I took a class on speaking, 
one of the things they told us is if in argumentation, if you want to argument, if you want to argue well, you should present your opponent's view first, and then pre- present your own. Oh, and interesting. People appreciate that because they then they realize that hey, you do understand both sides of the issue, and right. so they're more likely to agree with you. But if you do something like these archaeologists did, and you happen to be a little bit knowledgeable about the field, it looks like a joke. They See, they, they don't even really advance the argument. They don't advance the science or the field of archaeology because the field is wrestling right now. At any stage, it's wrestling at a certain level of these different theories about what happened in the past. Well, if you're going to write a book about archaeology, if you want to advance the cause of archaeology, then you ought to address those arguments that are going right now and not just give a one-sided approach because nothing's been advanced since you didn't discuss any of the current issues. Right. If you come up with a whole different viewpoint and don't address anything about the old viewpoint, then it's like, well, why... Why should we throw the old viewpoint out for the new viewpoint? Right. The only purpose it could possibly have a book like this is propaganda value. Yeah. Because they're appealing to somebody who doesn't who isn't familiar with the field and doesn't know the evidences that are opposed to their views. Right. So, and it's I, like many of the atheist books that you see written now where they only give the one side of it or they will for instance, if they do talk about some of the arguments for the existence of God, they'll use arguments from ancient Greece, not mm. letting anyone know that maybe those arguments have been better refined and you know are much stronger now than the older, earlier arguments. Right. They'll use a deliberately outmoded version of the argument in order to better disprove it. <laughs> Correct. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. If you want to email us, send your email to email at evidence, the number four, faith.com. All right, so that's the first card stacking, which is basically selective omission. You just leave out anything that disagrees with you and put everything in your favor. Give your own viewpoint and nothing else. Right. All right, next is name-calling. Oh, this is another biggie today, too. <laughs> yep. We've heard it a lot, haven't we? Oh, yeah. So Many TV shows make a living by this. <laughs> right. <laughs> Any kind of derogatory language, you know, trying to arouse prejudice, basically. Now, yep. the funny thing is about this is... What you're trying to do is get the people listening to become prejudiced against your opponent. And, but one of the ways you can do that is by name-calling them and calling them prejudiced. Right. <laughs> right? Oh, you only believe that because you're a bigot. You're a homophobe. You're prejudiced. Right. And why are you saying that? In order to prejudice those who are listening. Right. You're, so, you're telling people to be prejudiced for your opinion and prejudiced against someone else's. <laughs> even using the term prejudice as a derogatory name. Right. 
So any kind of any kind of a name calling, um, sarcasm, using humor, ridicule, trying to make somebody look bad, all that all fits under this this category of name calling. It amuses me uh, the way the term discrimination is thrown around so much today. Mm. The the thing that amuses me about it is when you used to use the word discrimination, it used to mean discriminating between one viewpoint and another in order in other words having yeah. bringing like a rational viewpoint to something and discriminating between what's right and what's wrong yeah making now, a choice right making an educated choice right but, but now the word anymore. means whenever somebody says you're discriminating that's a negative term and it means that you're you're against something for no good reason <laughs> right right yep it's almost a whole different word now than it used to be. I think, um, who is it? Dennis Prager has this term. He calls it six herb. Have you heard of that? No. It's just a list of all the things. So six herb is a sexist. Let's see, I don't remember what the I is for, but xenophobic, homophobic, racist, bigot. Right. You know, so that so he has them all listed. <laughs> right. And he just says, "Oh, I'm a I'm a six herb." <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, that's the name calling, and and you find that real on both sides. But I have to I have to, in all honesty, really say that this is a a leftist tactic. The hard left is this is one of the real ways that they they use. You don't really hear much of that on the right. Other than to call people leftists, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, when when you don't have a good rational argument for something, that's a good thing to fall back on. Mm-hmm. Just kind of put down, you know, the people that you're disagreeing with. Exactly. Yep. There, you can always fall back on name calling. Yep. And that's All not right. only prevalent in our media today, but uh, politicians are doing that a lot too, which I wish they would get over that. Oh, yeah. These are all very useful things for for politics. Yeah. Okay, how about stereotyping? Stereotyping is the third method of propaganda that we need to be watching out for. Right. And that's basically just oversimplifying something or somebody. Right. So you either oversimplify somebody's beliefs and you can see how this is a little similar to name calling. It's really where you you boil somebody's thought processes down to something really simple and therefore out of context. Right. And you can use it against whole groups of people. Yes. At once. Like, for instance, if you say, all religious people are bigots. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. That would be an example of stereotyping. Right. And and you automatically dismiss all religion that way. (laughs) Yes. Yep. All right. Stereotyping, and then uh, fourth item is what's called bandwagon. Now, this one... Or jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah, jump on the bandwagon, yep. This you see a lot in advertising, and political advertising, and in commercials. So, what is bandwagon? Bandwagon is appealing to someone to follow the crowd. Right. Hey, everybody, let's do this. Or let's do that. 
Tune so in to our new hit show, even though they only have six viewers. Yeah, it's like every the, the new show that everyone is watching. Right. There you go. That's the appeal. What, to what, what the show? Company. I never heard of that. That's right. The hottest and latest. It's now politicians will do this when they they get up in front and they say, We're winning. The polls show that we are winning. Oh yeah. See, jump Pol- on our polls are wagon. really used a lot to uh, do this. Polls and yes. statistics. That's right. Lying, lying with statistics. Yep. Most people believe, according to recent polls, what we believe. So don't believe anything else. That's right. <laughs> Hurry and get this free item because it'll go fast. Everybody wants one. Right. Get this free item, plus $2 shipping and handling. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. So that's Bandwagon. Okay. Now, this one's an interesting one. This has got a name. It's a little... I don't know that the name is so clear for what it is, but it's called Glittering Generalities. Yeah, I've never actually heard that term before. Right. And it's something... I think it'd be useful to use sometime though when you hear somebody in a speech say it or or you know something like that and you say ha oh, well that was really a glittering generality and people will go ooh what's that well you're you're about to learn what a glittering generality is this is a general a generality that is glittering okay it's a it's a glowing thing it's a generality that no one can say no to okay, okay. It's like we should do this for the children's sake. Okay. So do you see what it is? Right. Well, maybe it's something that's related to children, but it still could be a bad thing. Or we should do this because it'll help all the poor people in the world. There you go. Okay. That's right. Now, that has nothing to do with whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe it's a bad idea. Right. That you want to do whatever this is. For poor people, but you're going to use a glittering generalization and get people to believe that they ought to be on your side. They ought to agree with you. After all, it's for the children. For instance, like the Wisconsin union issue, didn't we see a lot of glittering generalities there? Oh my gosh. Now, you can do this on both sides. What are you, anti union? (laughs) Well, no, that's why I say you can do this on both sides. You could be on the union side and say, we're doing this for the children, right? right? Or you could be on the opposite side and say, well, this is a matter of liberty. Okay. (laughs) Right? Okay. Well, uh, yeah, okay. Well, who can disagree with liberty? (laughs) Right, exactly. See, who can disagree with it? That's the whole point of a glittering generality. I see. No one's going to disagree with liberty. Right. No one's going to disagree with doing something for the children. Right. (laughs) So, you know, so if you're writing an ad campaign and you want to get people to buy into what it is you're, you're saying, use glittering generalities. All the best people use this product. Implying yes. that if you don't use it, you're not one of the best people. Yes. <laughs> All right, let's jump on to the next item here. Plain folks. This is kind of uh, trying to relate to the common person. Yes. Now you see this. This one, 
Well, I guess you see it in advertising. Yeah, but, sure. But I think mostly you see it in politics. So you'll see some yeah, guy, you know, he'll... Oh, I think Carter was good at this, right? He would, he would take off his jacket and tie, roll up his sleeves, unbutton his collar, and go down on the White House lawn and talk to people through the fence at the, uh, at the White House. Okay. Right? That's, that, that's the plain folks way. In other words, just because I have an entourage of 50 Secret Service <laughs> agents behind me doesn't mean I'm just a regular, not just a regular guy, just like you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, yeah, politicians, you know, and the reason you And I get seven-course dinners every night at the White House. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> But the reason you do this is that people tend to agree with people that they can relate to. Right. So if you're giving a speech, you know, you don't want to show up at a, say, some kind of blue-collar lunch and be in a three-piece suit. Right. Right? Uh And conversely, you know, you don't want to be addressing a group of CEOs and you know, stand up there in a, a t-shirt, t-shirt and sweatpants. Jeans. Right. Yeah. You know, they're, they're automatically, they're <laughs> not going to, they're, they're not going to listen to you. Right. So the important message that the person is trying to get across is I'm just like you. So you're really so, trying to relate to your audience. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're trying to get them to relate to you. That's right. what you're trying to do. And now this, you'll, you'll see this, uh, in fact, there was a big hubbub, I don't know if you remember, some years back when President Obama was speaking to black audience and he started to affect their colloquialisms and, and their accent. Right. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that is this plain folks. See, I'm like you. I even talk like you. He he kind of spoke in like black jive or whatever. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a perfect example of this. <laughs> and and you'll see this on commercials. You know, who's that guy? Do you remember that the guy who's on a bunch of commercials these days because he's the host of that show Dirty Jobs? Mm, yeah, I don't remember his name though. Okay. Mike, Mike Rowe, I've just been it? told. Josh yes. just told me. Yeah, the, our engineer, good, saved the day. Thank yes. you. Thank you, our television watching guy. He's our so, uh, information source here. That's right. So here he is. He's looking. He's saying, you know what? I'm just like you. I'm a plain guy just like you. And hey, I like this car. Okay. So it's a great way to sell a car. So much better than somebody in, say, a tuxedo, right? Or some guy, I don't know. I love it when Hollywood celebrities do things like fundraisers and, you know, for uh, poor people or whatever, and they show up in their jeans and their their everyday clothes and everything, and they're like, you know, I'm just like one of you, you know, and, and you, I really believe in this cause, and you should send your money in, and... You know, what they don't tell you is that they live in a $20 million mansion and they have six cars and, you know, they eat four meals a day and they don't show all that part of their lifestyle. They have their own private jet. Right. Yes, they're pretending to be plain folks. Right. Well, you know what? That that fits into our next 
item, our next method of propaganda is the testimonial. Okay. okay. Now, people will think, well, gee, what's wrong with testimonials? Well, there isn't really anything wrong with testimonials. I mean, you know, really, when we're looking at propaganda, it's not that it's bad to use testimonials. It's if what we're true. saying is that this is just a way. These are all the different ways in which you move people to agree with you. Right. And I think testimonials is a is a you know typically speaking it's a it's a very good thing to do. You know, you want to know like don't you nowadays when you've got the internet and you can buy something say at Amazon or or something you look at the reviews. Right. Right, because uh-huh. you want to get those testimonials. Right. Okay. Well, the way that this is misused is if you connect it, like you said, to a famous person. Okay. Like so if now, Bruce Willis come, if Bruce Bruce Willis comes on TV and he says, you know, I use uh, Crest toothpaste every night, and I think you should too. That's but right. he doesn't actually use it in real life. He's just saying that because they just paid him three million dollars to say that. Well, they might have paid him $3 million to even actually use it. So he may actually use it, too. So it's not like he's lying to you. Right. Yeah, they just gave him a 20-year supply of it. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah, the the testimonial, the way that it's propaganda is when they use things that are unrelated, like like a star, a Hollywood star, you know, somebody who's either very famous or very respected. Like they might get some scientist, right, or a mm-hmm. doctor. That's a good one. You know, right. doctors have a lot of credence with people. Sure. You know, just that built-in authority factor. And so a doctor will get on on the air and he'll say, buy vitamin X. It's good for you. I use it. It's <laughs> right. He's giving a testimonial. Right. So that's one level of propaganda testimonials. Okay. Next, transfer. All right, transfer. What is transfer? Now, this one is more, this is one of the more insidious methods of propaganda. It's done kind of subconsciously. It's, well, you know, of course, a lot of these are subconscious, like the plain folk thing where I, you know, I dress up like you or I start talking like you. You know, it's, you're supposed to, subconsciously resonate with the person but this is even more insidious i think this kind of seems to relate to a couple of the earlier ones too like possibly stereotyping or a bandwagon yes yep but specifically transfer is where you you link an idea okay this is the idea that you're trying to put down yeah let's let's pick put down so you want to put down it's an idea so now you'll link that idea to something that you know the person doesn't like right okay and you show you you make a connection somehow now this is what the nazi propagandists were really good at in their propaganda films against the jews right what they would do is talk about the crowded jewish ghettos right okay but what was it that they were showing you on the film at the time that they're talking about the crowded jewish ghettos they would show 
dozens of scurrying rats <laughs> crawling across the floor or crowding into a corner of a room. Uh-huh. So subconsciously, they want you to be thinking about rats when you're thinking about Jewish people. Right. And so this is one of the ways that propaganda gets people to think badly of others. Yeah. So now, of course, it could be used the opposite way. You could, you could try to link something. Let's say, oh, you are selling, what are you selling? Beer. Okay, so you're selling beer. So you're going to transfer, you're going to do a transfer by linking beer to something that you know people like, like maybe a beach scene, a comfortable afternoon, maybe laying in a hammock, right? That's really comfortable. I like laying in hammocks. Or you show, a, you show a guy drinking your beer and he's surrounded by all these gorgeous women that are all fawning yes, over him. Yes. The implication is... Yes, that if you drink our beer, you're going to attract women like flies. <laughs> That's right. That's right. They use that one a lot. <laughs> yes, they do. Yep. So they're trying to they're trying to transfer pleasure, trying to transfer all these positive feelings that you might have to their product. Right. Sex sells. Yes, it does. <laughs> that that drives me nuts when they when we have commercials where they talk about like how sexy the new car is. It's like you know, what is sexy about a car? <laughs> That's right. It's That's just right. a bunch of wires and metal. What do you mean sexy? <laughs> well, I, see, I guess you've been married too long. <laughs> All right. Be careful. Now My wife's listening to this show. That's right. <laughs> the last item, propaganda. This one is called exigency. I have no idea what that means. Exigency. Really? <laughs> well, okay, I do. I'm glad because I don't. Explain it to me. <laughs> <laughs> Exigency is where you try to convince somebody that there's an urgent need. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, so, every commercial has that. <laughs> yes, that's right. Exactly. Every com Just about every commercial has got some feeling of exigency. You right? need this there's and you need it right now. <laughs> yes, you can't wait. <laughs> Hurry while supplies last. Right. <laughs> right? Or if you're one of the one of the first fifty callers, call now. Receptionists, you know, ready, are to, ready take to take, your, take calls. your call. Yep. That's right. So exigency is a form of propaganda to try to get you to do what they want you to do right away before you forget, before you all these feelings and stuff they've built up in you have gone away. Right. Yeah, that's a popular one. It's also can be used a lot of times for, oh, maybe fundraisers for the poor, right? There's an urgent need. So they create, and now again, this can be true. This is, again, that you know, it's not that it's necessarily not true. It's just that they're doing it to try to get you to convince you that you're going to, say, give money to this cause. Right. So they might say, okay, in southern Sudan, there's a terrible drought and all these people are dying and they're all going to die within a few days if you don't do something. Right. Okay. Uh -huh. Now, again, that might actually be true. That's not really the point. The point is that they're trying to convince you of something. They're trying to get you to think a certain way. Or to send so, them money. That's right. I guess 
you know, with all of these different methods, we're not saying that all propaganda is bad. In fact, really, in a sense, what we do on this show is a form of propaganda. We're trying to convince you to believe the same way we believe. Right. But we do it by honest means, by giving you good, strong evidence and good, solid, rational arguments. Right. And that's what you need to be looking for when you're reading a new book, watching a movie, listening to commercials, or trying to decide on who you're going to vote for. You need to really pay attention to, is this person using propaganda? Well, of course, they will be in some form, but is it legitimate? Is it a legitimate use of propaganda, or are they really just trying to manipulate you? Right. Right. So... Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. So, Kirk, we need to wrap up our series on critical thinking and why people believe the things they do. So, I thought we'd jump into a little item that I came across in part of the research that we did for the show. Now, we talked about some of the kind of mental issues that, that come up and what makes a person believe something and what makes somebody else not believe the same, same evidence, the same arguments. Right. And we looked at all those different things. And we talked about the fact that there is some psychological uh, elements that are there. You know, whether maybe if you had an abusive father, you know, that you may tend to disagree with your father later on as you grow up. So I thought I'd bring out some interesting items that have been written up by some psychologists. So here's a quote. This is from James Spiegel in his book, The Making of an Atheist. The quote is, the descent into atheism is caused by a complex of moral psychological factors, not a perceived lack of evidence for God's existence. The atheist willfully rejects God, though this is precipitated by immoral indulgences and typically a broken relationship with his or her father. Thus, the choice of the atheist paradigm is motivated by non-rational factors, some of which are psychological and some of which are moral in nature. Close okay. quote. Right. That's from James Spiegel, a psychologist who's written on this topic, Dr. Paul Vitz. And he's very interesting because he's a former atheist. He got his training and began his career as a research psychologist as an atheist and later became a Christian. So he has a lot of personal insight into this field and has written about it in a book called Faith of the Fatherless. So, I thought we'd go through some of his analysis of the psychology of atheism and why it is that people are atheists. Now, his main point is that this is a rebuttal of the idea that people only believe in God because of an emotional or psychological reasons. You ever heard that before? Oh, sure, all the time. <clears throat> yeah, right? You're just a Christian because it's a crutch. Right. You're, you're just a Christian because you can't handle 
the world. You you need the emotional support right. that religion offers. Right. So this is a rebuttal of that because and, and the reason it is is because that, that same argument can also be applied to unbelievers. Sure. So it, it makes that argument a moot point. And and basically what his he's saying is that this kind of guessing at people's psychological needs should be taken off the table. So we shouldn't be arguing it one way or the other. And the atheist is wrong to use that as a as a tactic and to think that that can be correct because it, it goes can be both used ways. against him. It, yeah, it goes both ways. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about this, though, that's in addition to that fact that it goes both ways, is that Dr. Witz points out that even though it does go both ways, the evidence seems to show that it goes towards or against atheism even stronger. It's a better argument against atheism than it is against religious ideas. Okay. First of all, he brings out the secular thought. He, he talks about William James, you know, famous psychologist who wrote a book called The Will to Believe, right? Okay, you only believe because you want to believe. Right. He wrote another book called Varieties of Religious Experience. So this is a very common view in psychology that people believe in religion because of a need, a psychological need that they have. So they basically, these psychologists who agree with Freud and, and James is that that they tried to explain belief in a kind of a naturalistic cause, right? Okay, right. They're, they're atheists, they're naturalists, they want to know why is it that people believe, so they, they're thinking of a naturalistic cause, and Freud talked about this as wish fulfillment. I don't know if you remember, but when I was a kid, this was really big in the, in the schools. You know, you don't hear it so much anymore that Christianity was just wish fulfillment, but you used to hear it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So he points out that Paul Witz does points out that this is a two-edged sword, as as we uh, as we mentioned, but it cuts deeper the other way. Is it true that the that you're only a, a Christian because of these needs? Maybe it's true that the major reason for rejecting God is not rational, but it's emotional, moral, and psychological. And that, actually, you know. If you look at what Scripture says about why people don't believe, Scripture seems to imply this, too. Even though Scripture says we ought to give a reasonable defense, mm-hmm. we ought to give rational arguments, we ought to persuade, it also shows us that there's deep moral, psychological, and emotional needs that people have for being atheists, right? So there's okay. a lot of psychological pressures, a lot of motives that lie behind unbelief. Right. Some people obviously have more serious, you know, it's more serious psychological barriers to belief than others. I know for me, I didn't really have much of a psychological or emotional. The, The moment I heard a really strong argument for the existence of God, 
I accepted it. You know, there wasn't there wasn't really anything psychologically uh, a big barrier, but lots of people do have this problem. You know, they'll hear really good, solid, strong arguments that God exists, that the Bible is reliable, that Jesus rose from the dead, and they still, you know, still find that they can't bring themselves to believe. They have these psychological right. barriers. And emotional barriers. Yes. Right. Now, that doesn't, you know, mean that we don't have free choice, right? We still do have a free choice to accept or reject God. We still will be held accountable. Sure. But, you know, that's not to say that there aren't these arguments, these, um, are not arguments, but um, psychological issues. Okay. So, well. there seems to be this assumption that belief in God is based on all sorts of irrational, immature needs, right? Well, that in itself is stereotyping. Yes, it is. That's right. This is that, a good example of stereotyping. Uh, you hear that a you know, lot in atheist circles that, oh, as atheists, we're rational and reasonable, but as a religious person, you're, you're emotionally immature and unstable, or else yes. you wouldn't believe that. That's right. That's but, a stereotype, just like we were just talking about a few minutes ago. Yeah, but you know, we know that that's not uh, really true because of the a lot of the testimonies that Christians give when they come to believe, and then they they tell us what their reasons were for not believing, and it turns out that they're they're very shallow, mostly. You know, there are a lot of very shallow reasons for unbelief. You know, and again, this goes back to the things that we talked about in the past shows. Things like socialization, things like peer pressure. You know, is peer pressure a good reason for being an atheist? No, but many people are because of peer pressure right. or just simple convenience. We talked about that. You know, it's pretty inconvenient being a Christian, having to give up money and time and, you know. And not think of all yourself the, all the time. <laughs> yep, yep. So there are a lot of, lot of shallow reasons, but there are. But what Witz points out is that there are a lot of deeper reasons for atheism. Okay, so let's cover this quickly. Freud believed that God is just a projection of our own intense, unconscious desires. Okay, wish fulfillment, he called it. Right. And, and what are we wishing for? Well, we have these needs for protection, right? A father figure who can protect us. So we project this. And... Even if you disagree with him, he believed that these were unconscious projections. So it doesn't do any good to deny them, right? <laughs> we shouldn't even believe somebody who denies, oh, no, no, that, that's not why I believe. Well, since it's unconscious, you don't. Now, Well, that's a good excuse to win the argument, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. See, this is a— You're wrong and you actually, don't even know it. <laughs> that's right. It's actually an ad hominem argument because you're appealing to the person. You're saying that, you know, there's something wrong with you. You have this unconscious desire, and that's just an ad hominem argument, so it's, it's irrational not, to It's begin. not really looking at the rational evidence for and against. It's looking at the person and saying, oh, you have all these wrong reasons for believing in this. Yep. So Freud— wrote a book called The Future of an Illusion, right? In which he said that religious ideas are illusions. Okay. Okay? And he talked about the benevolent father. But he made a mistake because 
very few early religions and even a lot of modern religions see God as a benevolent father, mm-hmm. right? Only Judaism and Christianity. But what about Hinduism and Buddhism and many of the ancient pagan religions did not see God as a benevolent father. So it really doesn't no. fit into it. And some religions see God as an impersonal force that has nothing to do with benevolence. Right. And so, and also this idea of projection, it doesn't derive from psychoanalysis itself. It's simply, and Freud said this himself, that this was just a personal predilection. And he actually borrowed it from Feuerbach in 1840. So, really quickly then, the interesting point that Witz points out is that if you turn this idea towards atheism, you actually pick up the psychoanalysis theories of Freud, because in psychoanalysis, the central feature of uh, psychoanalysis is the Oedipus complex, where you hate your father and you love your mother. Right. And you want to, when you're a little child between age three and six, you develop this uh, desire to supplant your father, and then it gets resolved normally. Mm-hmm. But guess what happens? It can pop out later, and it causes adolescent hostility and towards authority figures. So, so Freud based, basically believed that all of neur- the neuroses of the world, just about everything, was based on this universal Oedipix, Oedipus complex. And... But guess what? That fits right in with atheism. Mm-hmm. So, well, we have to wrap it up now, and we appreciate everybody listening. You have been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. Join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. for more reasons to believe, and always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. <laughs>